Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm interviewing Beatrice Williams, the best-selling author of Cocoa Beach and many other novels. After a trilogy following the lives of three socialite sisters in the 1960s, Beatrice Williams has focused on writing historical fiction set in World War I and the 1920s. This year, she has... Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm interviewing Beatrice Williams, the best-selling author of Cocoa Beach and many other novels. After a trilogy following the lives of three socialite sisters in the 1960s, Beatrice Williams has focused on writing historical fiction set in World War I and the 1920s. This year, she has published two books in her new series about the Prohibition years, in which every so often a character from one of the earlier novels makes an appearance. One such character is Virginia Fitzwilliam, née Fortescue, the heroine of Cocoa Beach. But the voice we encounter first is that of Virginia's husband, Simon, in a letter written three years before the main story begins. May 16, 1919. My dear wife, let me tell you about this pen. Handsome object made of black enamel, repeating fleur-de-lis motif in gold leaf. Casing somewhat scratched owing to years of hard use, rather like its owner. Knows you well enough, I expect, to write this letter without instruction. Anyway, I wish it would. I have been holding the damn thing for an hour at least, turning it about between my fingers, getting up and walking around the room, sitting and staring and resolving. The truth is, I'm afraid I don't know what to say. I don't know what to write to make you believe in me again. I stand accused and convicted of a despicable crime, and you never allowed me a word in my own defense. If I could, I'd whisper in your ear the entire truth. But I suspect you wouldn't believe me, would you? God knows, as a practical matter, you shouldn't believe me. Anyway, I can't tell you the truth, at least not yet, so that's that. Instead of relying on your faith, then, I shall have to attempt the next best thing, the hardest thing. I'm going to prove my, I was going to say innocence, but that's not quite true enough, is it? I'm not an innocent man, and I've never pretended to be, at least with you, the one person with whom I never pretended. But I can insist I'm innocent of this one crime, at least, that I married you for yourself alone, and since I'm afraid, in the wake of my parents' deaths, the house must now be sold for taxes and the estate broken up, I shall take up the last inheritance remaining to me and make something of myself at last, something, I hope, you will one day recognize as the man you thought you had married. I shall write my next letter from the mosquito-bitten town of Coco, Florida, at the head of a once-grand shipping empire which I intend to resurrect for your sake. And then, well, what? You will decide, my own dear phantom, my irreplaceable and inalienable wife, my own Virginia. If you'll remember, if you're honest in remembering me, I have always allowed you to choose for yourself. In the meantime, may God watch over you. Yours always, S.F. And now, please join me in welcoming Beatrice Williams. Hi, Beatrice. I look forward to talking with you today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, When you graduated from Stanford, you first studied finance and worked in communications. Uh, How did you get into writing fiction? Well, um, you know, I had always wanted, of course, like like most writers, uh, you're either sort of born uh, to it or you discover it later in life. I was certainly one of those who was born to it. I have always been writing stories since I was a small child. but, you know, my, my father was raised in, he's actually British, and he was raised in post-war England during rationing and all that. So he's a bit more practical. And so he encouraged me to pursue a career uh, that might actually, you know, pay off my student loans. Uh, and so I did. And, you know, I do actually have, and, and it does kind of factor into my writing a bit, I do have a, a more practical side. He, he's an engineer. I have a lot of those elements in my brain, uh, 
and I think it, it influences how I, I structure plots and things. But I think, you know, I, I, I actually enjoyed the finance career and I loved that problem solving aspect of it. Uh, what I didn't really enjoy so much was just, you know, the, you know, the, the sort of long hours and the, the, you know, the constant sort of interface with clients and, and just this, you know, the, the, the PowerPoint slides and just this sense like, well, we're, are we really doing anything that's, making a difference. And, and of course, you know, it, there was no balance with my creative side. So when I did have kids uh, and I was home with my kids, uh, that was when I said, okay, you know what, this writing thing that I have, you know, always wanted to do, uh, I think it's time to make that happen. So I focused and, uh, you know, used my children's nap times to my advantage and, and uh, finally got where I wanted to be in the end. That's great. So had you always wanted to write historical fiction in particular? Yes, definitely. In fact, um, when my first book uh, that was actually published, that was overseas, uh, had a strong contemporary element, it sort of surprised me because I had always, you know, been focused on history. You know, I, I was I read uh, novels from a very young age, and and they were always, you know, there was always a historical element. And as I said, my father's British, so of course he, you know, went through the canon with me, which is you know primarily these sort of nineteenth-century British novels. So I've always had a very historical outlook. And in fact, you know, I was just digging out my old high school yearbook and there was actually one of my sort of, you know, there's a quote in there for me that said uh, something about um, how much I loved history was my favorite subject because it's like a novel, only it really happened. So, um, so there's a little foreshadowing for you, I guess. Uh, yes, historical fiction, always what I wanted to do. And, and particularly after college, when I took this wonderful course in turn of the century Europe and the effects in particular of the First World War on the modern world. That was when I I really found the particular slice of history on which I wanted to focus, which is the first half of the 20th century. So you have quite a number of novels under your belt by now. You have uh, three Skylar Sisters stories, two standalone novels before those, one of which you just mentioned. Uh, a novel about another member of the Schuyler family, co-written with two fellow novelists, uh, three Jazz Age books, and eight historical romances, mysteries, as Juliana Gray, um, not to mention <laughs> at least one short story that we're going to get to in a minute because it's a uh, prequel to a certain age. Um, and you have been publishing you know, one or two books a year uh, since 2013, at least, uh, under your own name. <laughs> yeah. And you had the four children, as you mentioned. How do you find the time to write? Well, I first of all, I, I love what I do. So there's that. Uh, it, it's really, I'm, I'm absolutely passionate about the process of writing and creating a fictional world. And I, it's not a happy day for me unless I have spent some portion of it on my laptop disappearing into into another world. So for me, it's it's you know, I say, oh, it's work, it's wonderful that I get to do this for a living. But in fact, it's it's work, but it's more than that. It's, you know, I think I'm tremendously privileged to be able to do this thing I love and to call it work. And, uh, you know, it, it's really just a question of discipline. This is where I think, you know, having worked very long, arduous hours uh, in uh, in finance and graduate school and uh, as a management consultant, really, you know, it, it imbued this discipline in me. And, and then having children, you know, because they are so demanding. You have to really focus and be disciplined when, you know, when they were little, when they were napping, uh, and now that they're older, when they're in school. So I'm very much able and even eager to sit down every morning with my laptop and say, okay, this is my time. This is when I get to do what I really want to do. Uh, and of course, uh, my house is a mess. So <laughs> my mother-in-law is always commenting on the amount of clutter. And I'm like, you know, there's your, hu- there's your son right over there. You know, we're not in the 1950s here, but you know, it's uh, it, but uh, you know, I would much rather have a, you know, a cluttered house and, and be able to write books than to have an immaculate house, but no books. No, I understand. Absolutely. My house is a mess too. <laughs> my husband's actually very good at cleaning, which is more than I can say for myself, but between working and writing, it's like, you know, something's got to give. <laughs> well, I, I think like most, he just doesn't see it. You know, I think he's quite willing to clean up if he mm-hmm. just notices that that pile of clutter is a pile of clutter and not just a stack of books on the floor, you know? So, uh, 
but you know, what do you do? You just, uh, you know, you have to accept the trade-offs of, of, of living the life you, you want to live. I do agree with you, by the way, that I think having kids is a tremendous, uh, you know, it, it really causes you to, to become very disciplined. And it's even better oh, yeah. when they're out of the house because then you still have the habits and you don't have the constant mom, 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 mom. Yeah, exactly. I think it, what it does is it really causes you to not just put yourself first. You know, you're, you're always doing something. And be, once you get into that habit of always doing something, I mean, I honestly, when I, when I sit down to read a book, which is what I should be doing anyway, but when I sit down to read, I have this pang of guilt, like I'm not accomplishing anything at this particular moment. So it's almost the pendulum has almost gone too far. And I am consciously now trying to slow down my writing pace. There will just be one manuscript I'm writing over the course of the coming school year. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. I'm excited about the book that I'm I'm about to start work on. So uh, we'll see if that, you know, improves my, I don't even want to call it work-life balance because, you know, it's kind of my, you know, the two halves of my life uh, because the work to me is often, you know, it's often more appealing than the life side of it. <laughs> Got it. So tell us a bit about the earlier novels, uh, The Secret Life of Violet Grant and Tiny Little Thing and Along the Infinite Sea, and then the two that came before that even. What inspired their stories? Well, Overseas was my first published book. Uh, I had a couple of manuscripts uh, earlier where I hadn't quite gotten the hang of this storytelling thing, which is, you know, number one, what makes a compelling story? And number two, how do you tell it in, in such a way that uh, the, you engage the reader uh, in the turning of pages, but also in in their own heads? You know, I think... Um, one of the things that I really strive to do is to not just lay it out in front of everybody to to really, you know, it's not just like a, a, a buffet where you get to just pile your plate and eat. You know, you really have to sort of engage in the creation of this this whole thing and to ask questions and answer them and speculate and not, you know, a lot of times I'll get emails from readers saying, well, what about this and that? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I kind of left that open for a reason because I want you to think about it and, and think about the character of this particular person and why they would do such a thing. Um, so I finally sort of, I don't know, it just kind of all crystallized in my head with, with Overseas. Uh, that was a book, uh, and again, it, it, it sort of surprised me because it, here's my fascination with the First World War, but for some reason, and I was actually sitting in a writing workshop when I first had the idea for Overseas, uh, I pictured this First World War infantry officer, uh, such as I would write about, um, but he was walking the streets of Midtown Manhattan. And it was it just, you know, one of those thoughts that pops into your head, and I couldn't let it go. And I thought, oh, God, you know, th this means time travel. And I have never, you know, had any desire to write a time travel book. But um, I just couldn't let go of this idea. And it started to build and grow in my head. And, and then I finally sat down to write it. And it was a very swift writing process. Uh, I think I wrote it from beginning to end, that first very rough draft in about six or seven weeks. Uh, I took at least that time of editing again before I felt uh, comfortable sending it out uh, in queries to agents. But, you know, that it very quickly got picked up by my wonderful agent, Alexandra Machinist at ICM. She's now at ICM. She was at Linda Chester at the time. Uh, and, and from then we were off. So when it came to write my second book, uh, which was A Hundred Summers, you know, I, I was really thinking, I had done some more reading in the meantime, and I was really thinking about, well, well, what do I want my books to be? I certainly am not sort of anticipating that I'll continue writing more time travel. Um, and I, I live in, uh, in Connecticut, and one of the sort of big legendary stories around here uh, is the hurricane of 1938. So I had this idea, I was reading a book about the hurricane, and I just had this idea, you know, here's this long, slow, hot summer in these New England beach communities of which, you know, I, and I'm a West Coaster, so I had always been fascinated by the culture uh, and the little microcultures of these East Coast, you know, these summer communities. And so I kind of combined that, I thought, you know, this this, it makes a great narrative arc, you know, that the storm arrives in September and just literally blows everything away. Uh, so that's how I came to write A Hundred Summers. And then the family that I wrote about in A Hundred Summers, when I sat down to write my next book, The Secret Life of Violet Grant, which is based on a family story on my, um, my husband's side, I thought, you know... You know, I had deliberately used the name Skylar because on the East Coast that 
Beck connotes a very old family because, of course, it's a Dutch name, and the Dutch were among the first settlers in, in the New York area. So it's sort of a shorthand uh, Dutch name for an old money family. Maybe they don't have a ton of money, uh, but they have enormous prestige and, of course, a long, long list of ancestors. And, of course, it gets the more ancestors, the longer it goes, the, you know, the more crazy they get and the more skeletons in the closet. So I use the Skyla family again for The Secret Life of Violet Grant, uh, which goes back and forth between the First World War and a young woman who actually has ambitions to be a physicist. So she goes to Europe and then, of course, war breaks out and she's got to to escape from this gathering storm of war. And then in the 1960s when um, a, a, the great, her great niece goes to figure out what had actually happened to her because she, she disappeared in mysterious circumstances. So it goes back and forth. Uh, and then, of course, this young woman in 1966, she's got a couple of sisters. So that's how I ended up writing Tiny Little Thing and Along the Infinite Sea. Uh, and, and then I was sort of like, phew, okay, that's, uh, that's a lot. Uh, and that's when I turned to the 1920s with a certain age. Okay, so the first work of yours that I encountered was actually an American Airman in Paris, um, mm-hmm. which was yes. your contribution to Fall of Poppies, uh, which is an anthology, uh, an anthology of short stories, which I was sent for an interview and I didn't have a space in my schedule, so I ended up doing a, a blog Q&A uh, with uh, Heather Webb, who was one of the editors. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like all of these collections, um, there were a number of stories that I thought were really excellent, and this was one of them. But it wasn't until I read A Certain Age that I realized that, that the character of uh, Octavian mm-hmm. Raffrano is actually a major character in A Certain Age. Um, and he's known in, in that book as the boy, which is, you know, a really, it's, it's both, in, you know, intimate and very off, down-putting, not, not off-putting, but, you know, it really puts him in its place, so to speak. So, <laughs> and so a certain age introduces the Marshall family, which we're going to be talking about now for a large part of the interview. Um, tell us who is Octavian Raffrano and uh, what is his relationship with the Marshalls? Well, I, I could sort of, I should really go back because Octavian Raffrano, um, I, so I grew up, um, my, my parents were very intellectual types and so uh, our uh, summer vacation every year was a trip down to, I grew up near Seattle, so we went down to Southern Oregon. Uh, there's a wonderful Shakespeare festival there, uh, with a replica, you know, a beautiful, one of the very first actually replica globe theaters, uh, in, in America. Wonderful Shakespeare Festival, but that was our vacation every year. Uh, we also had season tickets to the opera from a very inappropriately young age, me and my sister. And uh, and so Octavian Raffrano is actually uh, a character in an opera. Uh, he is Octavian Raffrano in uh, De Rosen Cavalier, which is Richard Strauss's wonderful uh, 1911 opera. Uh, that's actually set in 18th century Vienna. And I love this opera. It's got a wonderful moment of grace at the very end that just takes your breath away. And it's also got a fascinating love triangle because it's about this woman. She's the the wife of the field marshal of Austria. Uh, Her name is Teresa, uh, and they call her the Marshalen because she is the field marshal's wife. So in my book, I, I always thought it would be wonderful to set this wonderful story in 1920s Manhattan, because I thought the periods had a certain congruence. Uh, and, and, and because the 1920s is such a particular decade in terms of its, its historical moment uh, and, and, and what it meant for the rest of the century, um, I thought that this would be a particularly useful tale uh, to tell in that period. It's, it's all about old money, new money, old and new, young people versus old people, and this negotiating of this whole new social order, which is, which is sort of, you know, coming in like a big gust of air uh, into, into an old society. So the Marshallin, uh, Teresa Marshall, in, in my book, uh, Adaptation of the Opera, uh, is an old, not older woman, uh, certainly as we would think of her, but she's in her early 40s, and she has an unhappy, stale marriage. She's also faced a lot of tragedy in her life, uh, and she meets this very young man who's just come back from the First World War. So he's young and yet old at the same time because of what he has experienced there. 
And they have this, they're having this passionate affair. Um, they're towards the end of the affair when the book starts. And she gets a visit from her, uh, well, actually in the opera, it's her cousin, uh, Baron Ox. And in, in my book, uh, it's uh, uh, Jay Oxner, who's her brother. And, and he's about to marry a young woman uh, from a family that's just newly earned its fortune. Uh, so the tradition in their family is to bring a token to uh, to the young woman who's uh, who's been engaged, uh, and so uh, they they decide that her lover Octavian should be the one who does this. And of course, what happens, as it does in the opera, is that Octavian immediately falls in love uh, with Sophie, who is a little more age appropriate for him. Uh, we we have this sense that the relationship with Teresa is flawed and is 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 going to be running its course at some point. Uh, so, but it is there's this wonderful tension. And, and it's really, you know, in the opera as well as the book, um, it, it's up to Teresa to really uh, be the one who resolves all this because she has great power over Octavian because, you know, he's got this very strong sense of honor uh, in both in both stories. So I, I, I loved the, the themes in the opera. I thought they would play so well in the 1920s, which is why I wanted to set the book there. And then when I came to write the story in the anthology, I was all set to write, you know, about the plucky young woman on the Western Front sort of story. And then just as I was starting to write it and I was kind of having trouble getting into it, uh, uh, I thought, you know, Octavian doesn't have a voice in a certain age. We, we go back and forth between Sophie's perspective and Teresa's perspective, but we don't hear from him at all. Uh, we don't know what it is that drives him. We know that he has some prior connection to Sophie. Um, but, but what is he really thinking? Who is he, what is he really about? So I thought, you know, I need to write this story about Octavian, uh, even if, you know, it, it doesn't follow that sort of perfect short story arc, I really wanted to, uh, to do him justice. And so that's why I wrote An American Airman in Paris, really as a companion to a certain age. I thought it was a very effective short story, actually. I mean, <laughs> one of your strengths is characterization, and we really do get a sense of him as a character and a sense of how he experiences the war, which is really the point of the whole thing. Exactly. I mean, I I think the thing that I, I was actually basing him a little bit on uh, somebody that hardly anyone has ever heard of, uh, Hobie Baker, who was this sort of golden boy sports star, uh, just your classic romantic hero. And I, I say that with a capital R, you know, the romanticism of the 19th century, where you had these very high ideals, where you, uh, a gentleman did not play sports for money. So once he graduates from Princeton, uh, he really has, you know, it's, it, 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 there's almost this sense that the, there's no place for him in the world. And he, of course, he graduates from Princeton right at the start of uh, the First World War, uh, the, this character, this real person, Hobie Baker, and goes off uh, once America enters the war. He, tra- he actually trains as an airman, goes off uh, to the war, and then he dies actually after the war is over. He's killed in a, um, just a test flight. I mean, one of these senseless deaths. Um, but there is also this sense, and, and Hobie Baker, by the way, actually appears as a character in uh, who was his contemporary at Princeton, of course, F. Scott Fitzgerald. So uh, there's a character in this side of Paradise, the football hero. That's actually Hobie Baker, and he's he's worshipped by everybody. He's got he's down to earth, uh, and yet he's this star. I mean, he's somebody that actually really couldn't exist in the current world, you know. And 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 of course he he dies, and almost, and, and there's this sense that he he almost does it on purpose because how do you go back and live the 1920s if you're really made for a different century like that? So I was thinking about that, this sense of these sort of you know, men, young men raised to very high ideals, and they're sent off to war, and they experience this horror. And how do you mentally cope with that? How do you shed your innocence? Do you shed your innocence? Do you still try and hold on to that piece of you that is your pre-war self? So that is Octavian's struggle both in An American Airman in Paris and uh, in A Certain Age as well. Because, of course, it has a double meaning. A Certain Age, it's 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 Teresa reaching, you know, as we call it, with women of a certain age. Uh, but it's also this particular moment in history, this 1920s, which is such a unique transitional moment for us as, as, as a culture, as Western culture. I really love hearing about all this background. Um, I'm not <laughs> a big opera buff, so I did not recognize that that was... I think you have to be raised on it, definitely. (laughs) Uh, But I think that's absolutely fascinating. So um, 
I didn't realize at the time when I first read A Certain Age uh, that the Schuyler family reappears there. Uh, yes. I remembered that yes. there were members. Uh, I mean, I remember characters named Schuyler, but I didn't realize that they had this long history with yeah, you. Yeah, tangled history. Exactly. And then, of course, the Marshall family continues on and to the point where yes. I have to be really careful what I ask so that I don't give away, you know, spoilers yes. for later books. Yes, any spoilers. <laughs> but it's really interesting to me. I mean, I have this long series, right, which is five books that involves this this large extended family and it picks up with various members of them. So I, I absolutely do understand in a sense why, why you would get into this world and want to follow one person or another person, but it is an interesting choice. I mean, most books, I I think most of the writers I interview, their books are are more disconnected. So what is is it about these families that makes you really want to get into their individual lives? Yes. Well, you know, apparently it's what the Marvel entertainment people call a shared universe. So all these superheroes who keep turning up in each other's movies, <laughs> that I guess that's what we do. Yeah, it's it's the shared universe. And, you know, it was it's funny. And I, I, I think that I actually, I, I actually, you know, I was first introduced to this uh, this storytelling device, I think you would call it, uh, in, uh, when I was sort of binge reading Anthony Trollope, uh, uh during business school, I guess, you know, as you do. <laughs> and, uh, when I should have been studying there, I was with, you know, can you forgive her? And, and he does that, of course, to tremendous effect in the Barchester novels and the, uh, the Palliser novels where you have these, you know, minor characters who then turn up as, you know, primary characters in another book. Uh, Phineas Finn, for example, uh, and I actually borrowed a bit of his name for uh, a character in one of my, my Juliana Gray books, as well as, you know, the sort of spy master uh, who appears in all those books, the Duke of Olympia. I actually borrowed from his name from the Duke of Omnium in the Trollope books because I thought Duke of Omnium. I mean, you know, that says it all right there. Uh, and And so... I, that was where I first sort of really loved that idea of entering into a world where it, it becomes like members of your own family. And, you know, I, at the time when I sort of went from a hundred summers to using that family again in the secret life of Violet Grant, I wasn't thinking, Oh, I should do what Trollope does. It, it just, it, but I think that having read all that and experienced all that, you know, my, my brain was sort of, you know, it, it was an easy step for me to take. Um, so I, I, I love that, and and because I think this world is so real to me, it, it is like this, you know, alternate universe in which I enter whenever I sit down with my laptop. So, you know, I think I, my loyal readers love it. Uh, I think sometimes people will pick up one of my books, and they'll see that there's, like, a dangling thread or two, and it will frustrate them because, you know, I, I think a lot of people want, don't like that ambiguity of, well, wait a minute, you know, what happens next, or what about this character, or what about this element that is never fully resolved. Um, I, I enjoy that. I love this feeling like there's something more to come. There's always some element of the story uh, that we don't yet know about, and we will, in the fullness of time, come to understand. Uh, but, uh, but although The Wicked City, of course, is the first in an actual series, so this is the first time I'm, I'm doing a, uh, you know, a more traditional type of series. So uh, Jen Kelly will continue on in um, at least, uh, I hope, certainly two more future books books, the first of which is already written. Uh, yes, yes. We'll get back to that in just a minute, because the, that's, I mean, we're actually heading towards the book that we're going to feature. But one of the reasons that I'm concentrating for a, uh, a bit on a certain age is because it's, it seems to me to be the initiating, even though it's not part of the series, a lot of the yes. the characters are set up there. And so exactly. I can talk about them more readily than about some of the others. <laughs> They're sort of non-sequential, all of these things. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to talk, try to talk, have a linear chat about something that's not entirely linear, but uh, we're, <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Teresa's character. I mean, she, you may have based her on an opera, but you obviously had to imagine her. She's, she's complex. She's, she's not entirely sympathetic, although we understand by the end why she acts the way she does. Um, yes. So, how did you come up yeah. with her? I mean, not, I, obviously, I know you came up with her from the opera, but how did you come up with her as, as the person that you created? 
Well, I certainly, you know, my starting point was the Teresa in the opera, but I mean, she quickly took on her own personality and, you know, of course she would have had a completely different experience um, than somebody who was raised in the 18th century. She was raised, you know, in the, the latter half, she sort of came of age, got married in the 1890s, uh, and then she soon realizes that her husband takes this sort of aristocratic view of marriage, which is that you have tremendous loyalty and affection to your spouse, but that does not preclude your having <laughs> adventures on the side. So, you know, she has this heartbreak because she's young, much younger than her husband, and she has fallen in love with him. And this is a great heartbreak to her, although she is the kind of person and was raised in an age in which you didn't express these emotions, and you didn't have psychology back then. Uh, and, and I try to make that point as delicately as I can, that, you know, in, in the early 1900s, Hundreds, Freud is just this crackpot, uh, you know. But then, the, but then by the 1920s, he's mainstream. He's you know, everyone's relying on psychology to explain everything about themselves, and that's the first time we have this moment where people are like openly emoting about things and and wanting to sh- bare their souls uh, the way we now see is so commonplace on social media. So, but Teresa's of a different generation, and I, I really, you know, I, I try to sort of really make that point. She's from a generation of, you know, this sort of very stiff upper lip, uh, where you don't, uh, you know, you don't talk about your problems. You certainly uh, don't complain. Uh, what's the royal family's uh, motto? You know, don't explain, don't complain, don't explain. You know, and so she does. She just keeps all this inside her, uh, and and she, you know, and she's narrating her sections of the book. So she is telling you, the reader, her story in her own way. So she is, in many respects, an unreliable narrator uh, because she doesn't want to share everything with you. She doesn't want you, the reader, to see her vulnerabilities because that's how she's been raised and that's just who she is. So, you know, it sort of drips out bit by bit. We learn that her son has died. Uh, her oldest son, the one that she just worshipped, her oldest boy, uh, was died in the First World War. We learn that she lost uh, a baby girl, her only girl, at birth. She was stillborn. And Teresa doesn't tell you how deeply she's grieved, but she sort of hints at it. Uh, you, I think if you're reading carefully enough, you see that she's shattered by all these tragedies that have occurred to her. Absolutely shattered. She, you know, at, in the moment she meets Octavian in, I think it's 1920, uh, you know, she is a completely broken woman. I mean, she's got nothing to live for. She's devastated. And here comes this young man into her life. Uh, and not, I mean, it, okay, for, I mean, you know, like I said, this is a time when Freud is becoming more mainstream. But here's this young man who survives the war, and like her own son, and he walks into her life just at that moment. So maybe there's a Freudian element there, but there's also, she just needs somebody to love So desperately, she needs someone to love who will be loyal to her and not leave her. Uh, So her need to hold on to Octavian is very, very strong. And and that's, I think, really the the sort of the narrative thrust of the book is Teresa's need for Octavian, her need to have somebody who is not going to turn his back on her. And Octavian, of course, senses that. He knows that she needs him. She needs him, in fact, a lot more than Sophie needs him. Uh, And because of the man he is, you know, it places him in this terrible position where he, he loves Teresa, but it's a different love than the one he has for Sophie. I mean, it's a very, it's such a, that's why I love the opera so much. It's such a complicated love triangle and, and they're so human, you know, that's what I, 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 I want my characters to be human and to have experienced the world and to make mistakes. My God. I mean, we all make mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes. We do the right things for the wrong reasons and we do the wrong things for the right reasons and we all need to be forgiven. We all try to redeem ourselves uh, and, and, and so that's what my characters do. So Teresa, you know, she's this woman who's completely wasted on her own era. She's so smart and witty and lovely. She's the kind of person who's the life of the dinner party, you know, uh, and that you never know that inside she is just hollow and weeping and and i i love that sort of character because you don't learn about them on the first page you have to get to the end of the book before you understand who they really are 
I think that's a very accurate description of her, yes. Um, so we're going to move on to the, the Prohibition series with The Wicked City. Mm-hmm. Um, I will mention just in passing that in addition to the double li- love triangle, there is a trial that uh, yes. goes uh, in the background of a certain age who gives a, a tremendous tension to the story um, and <laughs> interplays with the, lo- the love triangles. But I won't give any more details than that because <laughs> I think that people should read it and, and find out what that's all about. But it does... It, it does have a resonance also in Cocoa Beach, which we're going to get to eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but The Wicked City is a, a dual-time novel. I mean, it's not time travel per se, but there are these two characters who are um, experiencing life side by side. And speaking of terrible mistakes, um, yeah. there are certainly some terrible mistakes in here. Uh, so we have a contemporary heroine, Ella Gilbert, uh, who has just fled her husband, and she takes an apartment in Greenwich Village, and which turns out to be the site of a speakeasy called the Christopher Club uh, in the 1920s, which people who have read A Certain Age will recognize. Here's another of these yeah. sort of links. <laughs> um, and the basement appears to be haunted by long-gone partygoers. Um, and so the story then flips back to 1924, uh, where we meet uh, Geneva Kelly, known as Jen, who was one of those partygoers. And so let's start with Ella. What's, what's going on with her? So Ella, um, and, and uh, when I was thinking it, so it all kind of goes back to the various ideas that uh, kind of went into the pot uh, when I was first conceiving uh, this book. Uh, and... Uh, my editor actually gave me this story. She she actually lived in this apartment building in Brooklyn, which was not far from the site of the old Ebbets Field, uh, which is where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. And uh, she so she's in this apartment building, and she'd moved in. And um, apparently, she heard, she starts hearing from the neighbors that you don't want to go down in the laundry room at night. And also that there are like, there's like this massive section of the entire basement that's closed off and people swear that they hear music coming and, but not like modern music, you know, like old music coming from the walls. And she said that apparently she did a little digging and apparently this apartment building used to be a hotel and it was the hotel in which the visiting teams would stay when they came to play the Dodgers. And of course we know baseball players were probably not, you know, drinking their milk and reading they're getting Bibles, you know, in their bedside tables every night uh, as they were on these, uh, you know, road trips. So, you know, I loved that idea that the the ghosts of these party goers, whether or not it's true, whether or not you believe in ghosts, are still somewhere there. They're sort of trapped there. And I think that anyone who is passionate about history has had that moment wherever it is, where you're standing on a site where something important happened historically or even something ordinary happened historically, and you almost feel like you can touch it. You almost feel like it's still there. And I wanted to sort of bring that idea, introduce that idea into the Wicked City, because I knew I wanted, I had been studying so much about Prohibition to write my 1920s novels that I thought, I want to do a whole series that's set around Prohibition. There's so many elements there, and it's it's such a, you know, gosh, it's, it's such an amazing period to sink your teeth into. So I already had the idea for Jen Kelly, for this young woman who comes from the provinces, you know, from, from some area of the country and then comes to New York City and gets entangled with this, you know, sort of, you know, with a, with a prohibition agent who wants to catch a bootlegger. But I wanted to have this modern element for two reasons. Number one, I loved my editor's story about the ghosts in the basement, but also because, um, one of the, you know, along the infinite sea, which was the book I had written at that point, two books earlier, uh, there is a couple there. And at the end of the book, uh, uh, she's going to have a baby. And everyone was asking me, Pepper's baby, what happens to Pepper's baby? So I thought, well, why don't I, you know, I, I can bring my scholars into this, uh, satisfy my readers that way. And, and maybe I should make this young woman uh, Pepper's baby. So that's what I did. Uh, I decided to make it uh, her Pepper's baby. And then I started thinking, well, what would Pepper's baby be like? You know, Pepper, as you might guess from her name, is, you know, as, you know, pretty, uh, pretty outspoken young woman. And she is very, she did like Teresa Marshall, in fact, uh, very witty, uh, very attractive, knows how to use her sex appeal. Uh, so I thought, you know, the daughter, the youngest, I mean, the oldest daughter of this woman is probably going to be the opposite. She's going to be somebody who is, 
you know, is shy and doesn't want to put herself out there. She's got this glamorous, larger-than-life mother, and she sort of lives in the shadow of this woman. So um, that was my idea for Ella, partly. And also I wanted her to be a sort of a foil for Jin. But, you know, these I think there's this misconception that these larger-than-life people are so strong and these shy people are just, you know, they're kind of timid and shy. And But, I mean, you know, Ella herself, she's got all the strength inside her, and it's just so untapped. That's what I love about Ella is, you know, she has lived her life trying to please these larger-than-life people in her life. Uh, and she realizes at the, you know, before the book even starts that her husband has been cheating on her. She's 30 years old. It's, you know, she's been married for a few years. Her husband's been cheating on her all this time. So she leaves him and, uh, and finds a rental in this Greenwich Village apartment. And it's kind of her side of the story. And like I said, this is a series, so it gets bigger and bigger. Her side of the story is really coming to terms with what has just happened to her, this enormous betrayal, and finding the strength to move on, finding something else. She's starting to realize her job sort of doesn't inspire her. Her whole life hasn't really inspired her. Now she kind of, well, who is Ella? Who is this person living inside me? And how do I, you know, how do I be true to this person? How do I tap this, this Ella who's inside me? Who is she? And, and how do I find her? And how do I bring her to life? So that's, that's kind of Ella's story uh, through the book. So um, I'm having so much fun teasing her out of her shell. Uh, she's really, she's got so much inside her, and I just I can't wait for readers to see more and more of her as the seri- series goes on. I can't wait either. I mean, she really is a fascinating character, but Jen is also a fascinating character, and she's quite different. Yes, I, she's one of my larger-than-life characters, and I love working with them. I think my, my, my sister's got a little bit of that personality, so I think it's a natural thing. I was always the shy one, you know, and she was the one who was more out there. So for me, it's a natural foil is, you know, two women who have these very different personalities, but they each have their own strengths and vulnerabilities. So, Jen, I got the idea while I was actually on book tour, and I was driving through rural Maryland, and... um and I noticed, yeah, and, and and certainly when you're driving through areas like that, there's certainly a lot of rural poverty. You see, you know, these, you know, some uh, farms that have, you know, and clearly uh, fallen apart in hard times, and a lot of the buildings are dilapidated. But then I was driving through uh, the highway, took me straight through the middle of one town, where they um, they had these mansions. I mean, large brick, and I could tell from the architecture that it was probably, they were probably built uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So when I got to the bookstore, and, and it was actually, it was Nora Roberts's bookstore, so it was an all-day event, and we had these breaks throughout the day, and, uh, uh, and so I spoke to the bookstore manager during one of the breaks, and I said, what, what's the deal with the town back there? And she said, oh, uh, I said, these big, beautiful houses, what, what happened? Where, was, where did this money come from? And she said, oh, that, that's from the bootlegging money during Prohibition. And, you know, you know how it is being a writer, like the, the, the bells went off in my head. I'm like, oh, this is a story. This is a great story. So at once I started imagining a young woman who comes from a town like this. She's maybe escaping uh, a difficult childhood and she goes to New York and she becomes a flapper in the 1920s. And then, of course, her past comes back to haunt her uh, and a prohibition agent uh, who is trying to crack this ring of bootleggers back in her hometown approaches her for help. So that is the premise uh, from which I started with The Wicked City. And uh, But Jen, you know, I knew she was, again, going to be this, she was going to be a flapper. She was going to have that, because it was such a, an interesting moment for women in the 1920s. And my grandmother, uh, who had an extraordinary life of her own, she she's, again, this is my father's side, so she's British, but she grew up, you know, on sort of the overseas dominions. And uh, and she she is actually not a terrible, she was incredibly bright woman, but but on the shy side, not very social. Uh, but she said, you know, the 20s and 30s was just a wonderful time to be a woman. I mean, you had all suddenly paths were finally open to you. And uh, and and you could you had so much more freedom than you had before the war, uh, partly because of the war, but also because, you know, you have women's suffrage and you have the 
automobile and you have just this opening up of the old social customs and the breaking down of the old rules. So all of a sudden women could go out to speakeasies and drink with men and they could drive cars and they could vote. And there was just this sense that, you know, women were finally coming into their own. And so I wanted Jin to be the kind of woman who kind of exemplifies that, who brings that particular thread of history alive. So I knew she had to have this personality, but you know, she was, but I gave her this backstory where her mother had, she was actually, she doesn't know who her father is. Uh, her mother had gone to be a showgirl in New York City, met an, a, man, a man who we sort of gather from various hints that he came from a much higher echelon of society and then abandoned her after she got pregnant. So Jen doesn't know who her father is, but, you know, she, she, and she, she tells herself she doesn't even care. But we know, of course, that this wounds her deeply, that she's been abandoned before she was even born and abandoned to a stepfather who is just about as horrible as he could be. So, but, but she's been educated well, and we're not quite sure where this money has come from, but someone has paid for her to have an excellent education at a convent and then paid for a first year of college. So Jin's voice, uh, and, and it came very easily because I felt I knew who she was just from the first page, <clears throat> and I love it when that happens with a character. Her voice, so she has this combination of her roots uh, in rural Maryland, but also uh, the effect of her education. She's been very strictly and well-educated. And as a result, she's become a bit of a chameleon. She can kind of adapt herself to whoever's in the room with her. So her voice, to me, you know, and, and all this sort of just came to me in a very natural way, who she was how she sounds, uh, how she thinks, uh, the way she presents herself to different people uh, was just a very natural um, result of this person she is, who I felt I understood really well right from the beginning. And that's wonderful, isn't it, when that happens? Yes, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> the, you know, it's the Ellas of the world who are a tough to write because they don't want to, you know, they're so, there's something deep inside them and they're not, they don't even know who that person is. And you really have to draw it out. You know, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. Who are you? Uh, somebody like Jen, of course, you know, she, does, she the, the talking is not a problem for her at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that we can talk a little bit about Cocoa Beach, I'm going going to just drop in this teaser and say that the Marshall family does appear in the Wicked City as well. Um, yes, they do. And uh, so Cocoa Beach is actually about uh, Sophie's sister from a yes. certain age. Uh, and her married name is Virginia Fitzwilliams, uh, originally Virginia Fortescue. And she's a relatively minor character in a certain age, but here she comes into her own. Uh, what made you decide that Virginia needed her own book? I kind of knew from the beginning it's why I created the character because I had been wanting to write about 1920s Florida for some time. I, uh, it's one of those kind of wonderful coincidences where I happened to be reading a book about the 1920s. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It was written actually in 1931 uh, by this wonderfully talented writer who had just lived through the 1920s and was clearly still experiencing the whiplash uh, that was the 1920s. It's very much a social and cultural history, although it obviously has, um, you know, some of the more, I guess, uh, you know, traditional historical elements woven in. It's got some politics in there too and, and that sort of thing. But it's really all about the social and cultural changes. And he has an entire chapter devoted to Florida because Florida experienced a land boom during the 20s that came as a result of a whole bunch of people going down and developing Florida. Uh, so you had the wealthy who came down and built their winter palaces there. Uh, you had men like Carl Fisher who came down and developed Miami Beach. Other developers who um, made coral, literally made coral gables from scratch. This was the first time people had really done that, had made a town from scratch. Like, okay, here's a blank piece of paper, a blank piece of land. We're going to decide what the architecture is going to be like, what this, how the streets are going to be laid. You know, it was a very, it was a, it was a planned community. And, so they're sending out these fancy marketing brochures uh, to Northerners and Midwesterners. 
and people are coming down in their droves. And in fact, you can buy your little piece of Florida on the train on the way down. They literally have sort of hucksters going up and down the train aisles, you know, with title deeds selling them. And such was the frenzy of speculation that you did. You bought, you didn't even know where it was, you know, and, and then you'd try and sell it on to the next guy and hopefully you'd turn a profit. So sometimes title deeds would switch hands two or three times a day, you know, at the height of this boom. So you have this mix of people. And of course, you've got uh, prohibition. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in my prohibition books is Rum Row, which is this line of ships that is essentially moored just outside U.S. territorial waters. It's like floating a floating warehouse that stretches all the way from Maine down to Florida, and it would get supplied from the outside. Uh, and then intrepid rum runners would make the journey at night uh, with as little moon as possible uh, out to Rum Row and come back again with uh, you know a shipload of, of contraband booze. And Florida, naturally, if you look at, I mean, it's got this long and at that point, undeveloped coastline. I mean, it was perfect. Uh, so you had a lot of rum runners and, and bootleggers uh, coming into Florida because of this incredibly lucrative trade. Uh, so, And then you had the landscape of Florida, which to me, as I was traveling around, and I went there for a family vacation that particular spring, and I went there on book tour. And it is, you know, that, that sort of lush Floridian landscape. And we think of, and yes, there's these developed areas, uh, you know, with the condos and everything. And we certainly think of Florida, we think of that. But there's also this vast inland wilderness, you know, if you fly over it, if you drive through it, it's pretty vast. And, you know, uh, the novelist brain is to sort of, you know, you look at this sort of dense, packed vegetation and you think, oh, that's a great place to hide a dead body. You know, you're, you're sort of thinking these diabolical thoughts. But it's true. You know, this sense of it was a very gothic feeling that I got. Uh, and it was sort of like this is like a tropical Cornwall. You know, you've got your smugglers, you've got your scoundrels, you've got your your money, your money to people coming down. And I thought this is just a great setting for a gothic novel. So I wanted to write this gothic 1920s Florida novel, this Daphne du Maurier in, you know, in jazz age Florida for quite some time. So when I wrote A Certain Age, and of course, one of my problems when I wrote that was, you know, De Rosenkavalier has three acts and there are three scenes and there's just not enough plot there for a full length novel. So I thought, well, you know, I'll throw in a murder uh, in order to give us more plot to work with here and to drive the accent a little more. Uh, and when I did that, I also gave Sophie a sister and I knew from the beginning that the sister was going to be the one at the heart of my 1920s book, which is why I gave her uh, a few elements of mystery uh, in a certain age, which you don't have to have read to read Cocoa Beach, uh, but I was setting up that story. So I gave her a young daughter, about two years old, and I gave her a wedding ring, and I gave her a past. Uh, I said that she had been to France during uh, uh, the First World War and had driven ambulances first for the Red Cross, and then once the United States entered the war, she, uh, she drove ambulances for the, for the United States Army. And so she had this past, and then she'd returned, uh, you know, pregnant, but with no husband, but with a wedding ring. And, and the story that's given at a certain age is that the husband is down in Florida looking after business interests, and he will send for her when he can. Uh, but any alert readers, uh, I imagine, would have those alarm bells going off that this is a very fishy story and something else is going on here. And in fact, that is the story of, of Cocoa Beach. Right. Yes, it is. I have to tell you, when I, and you probably intended this, when I read A Certain Age, I just assumed that there was no husband at all. But <laughs> Exactly. That was, that was exactly my intention. I was like, I was trying to get people to think that, you know, it just this is just so fishy because anyone can buy a wedding ring, you know, right. and anything. When something happens overseas in the pre-internet era, you know, what happens on the Western Front stays on the Western Front, you know. Uh, so I, I certainly wanted to have alarm bells set off. And at the end of A Certain Age, um, it's one of my little dangling threads that readers are like, wait, what happened to Virginia? She, she gets a telegram uh, from Florida, and uh, the next thing you know, she's, she takes her daughter and gets on a train, and that's the last we see of, of poor Virginia. Uh, so many readers are wondering what happened to her, and I said, don't worry, it'll all come clear next year. Uh, so that, that is Cocoa Beach, which goes back and forth between um, the First World War and what happens to Virginia uh, during that time, and the man she meets, the father of this child, and 1922 
Cocoa Beach, where we learn the contents of that telegram, which is uh, Virginia has just learned that her husband has perished in a fire, a house fire in Cocoa Beach. And, uh, and so she goes down to find out what happened to him and even if he is possibly still alive. So there's so much more that we could say, and unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I just have to have you come back and talk to me when you publish the next book. But uh, what would you like readers to take away from Cocoa Beach and the, the other novels that are associated with it? Well, you know, I, I, I write about historical periods, but, you know, and, and when I give my book talks, I, I give the historical lecture about the 1920s and, and, and all the elements that made it this extraordinary decade in our history. But my goal with, the, with Cocoa Beach and with all my books is to simply immerse the readers in a fictional world. I'm not writing about historical figures. Uh, I like to write about people living their lives within the context of this history. And and one of my frustrations in reading some historical fiction is, is where we, we, we have sort of lulled readers into accepting modern people essentially dressed in period clothing. That, ha- that happens quite a lot in historical fiction. I, I really want my characters to be historical characters. And sometimes that means that we have a hard time relating to them because they are raised in a different, completely different way. Uh, They don't necessarily think like we do. Uh, They don't emote like we do. They don't share themselves like we do. They don't, you know, they don't have our viewpoint in our outlook. But what I really want to do is to show people what it was like to live in that particular period, to be a woman living in that particular period. And in Cocoa Beach in particular, you know, you have so many elements coming together, uh, you know, and, and, and psychology, you know, that there is a psychopath in Cocoa Beach uh, and Virginia's job and the reader's job is to discover who that psychopath is. And I draw this portrait of the psychopath from the very first moment uh, that that person enters the scene. Um, But it's a slow, careful process. And I want the reader to experience that same sense of whiplash as people did during that decade where everyone you think you trust, everything you think you trust is in fact, you know, it's the other way around. You know, it's, it, you can't, trust who you thought you could trust. The ground is so unsteady under your feet and you have to find a way, you know, to, to learn the new rules and to find your own strength and to make this journey, uh, you know, to, uh, to hopefully a position of, you know, of happiness at last. So uh, what are you working on now? Did I hear you say that you had just finished a manuscript? I did indeed. Uh, it's set on, and this is something that nobody outside of New England knows about. It's, it's a fictionalized version of Fisher's Island, which is this very small, exclusive sort of, you know, island in Long Island Sound um, that sort of, it kind of makes Nantucket look like, you know, uh, you know, makes Nantucket look like a, a you know, a, a open for all. I mean, it's that you, you, the, the first rule of Fisher's Island, it's like fight club. You don't talk about Fisher's Island. So I, I changed the name and I changed some of the characteristics, but it, you know, I was an anthropology major in college and I love these microcultures, you know, and this island has a very particular culture of that very old wasp elite, and it's kind of like their last stand uh, out there. And um, so I, I've written a book uh, that is set there, uh, and and that particular it's kind of focused on the particular conflict between the summer families who come there uh, from, again, this sort of wasp elite and the year rounders, the the fishermen, um, the the sort of the working class of the island who live there year round and who tend to come from immigrant backgrounds. There's a lot of Portuguese and Italian uh, names uh, in the, the roster there. And it's such a fascinating tension because they are loyal to each other. And yet there is this, this bit of us versus them uh, mentality. So I really wanted to explore that tension. Uh, so that book is is all about that tension, and it obviously uh, kind of comes to an explosive uh, conclusion by the end. 
So is this part of the Prohibition series, or is this a separate? It's novel? not. This is actually set um, in 1951 uh, and in 1969. So it goes back and forth. Uh, and so I, I, I did want to. So if I have done everything except World War II at this point, which is of course where <laughs> where all the big uh, historical fiction books seem to be written right now, is World War II. But I've kind of avoided it uh, at this point. But so it's 1951. So right now, I'm, I'm fascinated with that post-war uh, wasp crowd because they had just fought and in many cases led uh, this war and now they've kind of their mission is accomplished so what is their purpose anymore uh, what are they there to do so it's sort of it is kind of about um, you know these people coming back to their island where they don't want anything to change and and yet there is a sense of of a loss of purpose uh, and so that's one of the elements running through this. I really wanted to explore that post-war mood uh, in America, and particularly in this microculture. So, well, uh, this has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Beatrice Williams about her novels, including the latest, Cocoa Beach. You can find out more about her at http colon slash slash beatricewilliams.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at newbookshistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.